We're going to continue our verse-by-verse series in the book of Romans today as we examine two examples of justification by faith. We began last week with Abraham. This week, we will look at David. And we are methodically working our way through Romans 3, 21 through 5, verse 21. For while Paul spent 67 verses to establish the reality that every person is a sinner, every person is condemned before a holy God and deserving of his wrath. And now he writes 56 verses to establish the wonderful truth that every believer is declared righteous before God by faith alone, in Christ alone, and his finished work alone, apart from works, apart from ritual, and apart from the law. And frankly, dear friends, you cannot be too clear about these matters, for they establish the absolute security and assurance of eternal salvation. And then they form the foundation for all Christian living by grace as well. You know, I had a conversation yesterday with a a young man who's attending a Bible institute in the United States. This is a person whose uh, parents have listened to a lot of messages connected with me over the years. And, and as I was talking with him, he said, you know, the teaching at the Bible Institute, first of all, it's not like it's wrong. And it's not as though it hasn't been helpful. But they're not, it's what they're not saying that so often is causing people yet to be confused about these very matters that we were talking about. It's what they're not saying. And you see here in Romans chapter 4, Paul's going to not only explain how you're justified, he's going to explain how you're not justified. And we're going to be covering that over the next few sessions as we study Romans chapter 4. But before we go there, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Because I want to establish for a moment the definition of the word justify. Now, I say that because whether it's lordship salvationists or even hyper-grace people, they are confusing the definition of justification. It does not mean to be made righteous. It means to be declared righteous. And in doing so, we're going to look at that today. But before we do, when you think of the greatest shipwreck in human history, which ship comes to your mind? I'm guessing that almost everyone here would say, the Titanic. And as you know, this was a mammoth-sized ship that was built in Belfast, Ireland, beginning in 1909, and then it went on its maiden voyage April 10, 1912, and in doing so, four days later, this luxury liner struck an iceberg, and early the next day, it sank, killing some 1,500 people. And the tragedy captured the world's imagination and has made the Titanic an enduring legend. And people were so impressed with this ship that their makers and others said God himself couldn't sink the Titanic. 
Remember, God does have a sense of humor, by the way. And within five days later, the Titanic had hit an iceberg and it had sunk, bringing 1,500 people to their watery grave. And you know, this reminds me of the truth of Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And when a person falsely believes they're good enough to go to heaven, when heaven is a perfect place for perfect people and all have come short. Or when a person thinks their works are going to contribute to their salvation, when Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished on the cross, and the Bible makes it clear it's all by grace, that individual is acting in pride. And like the Titanic, they will perish because they have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone as pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And in this case, the results are horrific. And what is so bad about this is that it was av avoidable if you would simply humble yourself to believe what the word of God says. You would humble yourself and admit that all your righteousness are as filthy rags. You would humble yourself and admit if you could go to heaven by being good, why did Jesus Christ come and die for you? Or as Galatians 2.21 says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Now keep in mind that justification does not mean to make a person righteous. This is practical sanctification nor to merely pardon or forgive a guilty sinner, though justification involves this, but it is a legal or judicial act of God by which he announces, he declares as a judge that the believer in Christ is now declared righteous or in a right standing with God. And you must be very clear about this. And I want you to see in some passages in Luke here, that the word justified could mean nothing else than declared righteous. In Luke chapter 7, I'd like to call your attention, if you would, to verse 29. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors, justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Now, we're going to talk about baptism next time and where it fits. But notice, even the tax collectors justified God. Now, did they make God righteous? Of course not. God was already righteous. They simply declared him to be who he was. Now go with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And we begin verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Now what's the problem immediately? Who can ever do that in order to live? That's the point. But he wanting to what? 
justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He was wanting to do what? To make himself righteous? Oh, no. To declare himself as righteous. And in doing so, he sought to dodge the issue through a question or raising another issue. Again, it means to declare himself, in this case, righteous. Now go with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And we begin in verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Notice, what do they do? They justify yourselves before men. Now, they don't make themselves righteous before men. But they declare themselves to be righteous before men when God really knows, in this case, their hearts. So again, the idea is to be declared righteous. Whether it's you doing it to yourself, or in the case of justification before God, God declaring you righteous. Now, let's go to one more passage in Luke, Luke 18. Luke chapter 18, and here's where people get the sinner's prayer, by the way. What's ironic is it's not found in a church. Secondly, he doesn't come forward. Thirdly, he doesn't say some rote prayer per se. Fourthly, nobody's leading him in prayer per se. But we see again the concept of justification as we begin in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who, now watch this, they trusted where? in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, very religious, another a tax collector. You know, the King James is a publican. Some people thought that meant Republican, not true. Though Republicans are not righteous either in themselves, right? The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God... No, first of all, he prayed with himself. I always love that. Prayed with himself. And this guy was kissing himself in the mirror. I mean, he was full of it by way of pride. Right? God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Well, first of all, notice, look, he's looking at other men instead of looking how righteous God is. He's comparing himself. And what are other men? Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. <laughs> Why do you say you're righteous? Well, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. In other words, I have earned it. I have worked for it. Notice, I, I, I. The spotlight is where? On him. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, reflecting his humble posture, but beat his breast or chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, that word, be merciful, is, goes back to the word for mercy seat. In other words, God, I, I'm asking you to treat me 
like you would treat Israel in view of the blood on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. In other words, to show me utter mercy and grace because I don't deserve it. Now remember, this was before the cross. Number two, no one's leading him into some sinner's prayer. He's simply reflecting his heart. And where is he relying on? Himself? His works? His own righteousness? No, he's turning to the Lord to do for him what he knows he is in need of and he cannot do for himself. And the next verse tells us, verse 14, I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house, what? Made righteous? Oh no, declared righteous, justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Now I use these passages to show you that the understanding of the word translated justified does not mean to be made righteous. It means to be declared righteous. And I say that, for now we go to Romans chapter 4, and we continue seeing the Apostle Paul not only give us the explanation of justification before God by God's grace in Romans 3, 21 through 26, and then the four conclusions regarding justification in anticipation of objections or questions in chapter 3, verse 27 through 31, but now an expansion of those conclusions. And in doing so, he's knocking down the dominoes. He's knocking down the sand castles on the shore by the truth of the word of God, verse by verse like a wave, knocking one down after another after another so that you end up at the conclusion, the only way I could ever be declared righteous before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and his work alone, never by mine. And that's why he gives us two examples of justification by faith apart from works. The predominant example that takes up most of the chapter is a man named Abraham. He was a revered Gentile who became a Jewish patriarch and the father of the Jewish nation. And he was justified before he was circumcised, before the giving of the law. And by a simple act of faith in the Lord, apart from works, is supported by the Pentateuch or the Torah. Now that word before is important. Because if you can be justified before circumcision, and before the law, then obviously they're not necessary to be declared righteous before God. The second example, which takes up merely three verses in this chapter, is a highly esteemed Jewish king named David, who was justified before God during the dispensation of the law by faith in the Lord, apart from good works, and in spite of his sins, as supported by the writings of the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament per se. And what is he doing? He's establishing that God's plan of salvation, yea, justification, has always been the same. That was true with Abraham before the law and before circumcision. It's going to be true, or was true with David, who lived during the law, and it's going to be true today as well. No one has ever been able to earn their salvation by their works. Now again, the first example is a person named Abraham. We begin in verse 1. 
What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if, and let's assume for the sake of argument for a moment, Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. That would be the conclusion. But now let's put in the caveat, but not before God. You will never be justified before God by your works. So he moves from the person now to the proof. And what is the proof? For what does the scripture say? You see, dear friends, the bottom line is always not what does the church teach? What is a religious tradition? What do you feel? What's your experience? Oh no, the bottom line is always the objective infallible, inspired word of God. And in doing so, Paul quotes here Genesis 15 and verse 6. Verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The word believe being a transitive verb needs a subject. It's Abraham here. It needs an object. It's God. And the result was it was accounted it was credited, it was reckoned, it was put to his account for resulting in righteousness from God. Now the word believe simply means that, to choose to believe in someone, to rely on someone, to trust in someone. And it was God, or as translated in the Old Testament, Abraham believed in the Lord. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so we move now from this personal illustration to devote two verses to the principle that Paul is trying to establish. That justification is by faith alone and it's contrasted with works. Now Paul's a very logical thinker. And in doing so, he lays out this contrast between faith and works and grace and works. In verse 4, what do we read? Now... To him who works. Now this is going to be the development of thought from verse 3. It's going to underscore the logic of grace. Now to him who works. Now when you see the word works, just think of someone who's employed. Someone who's working a job. They are spending time working in order to get not a gift, but a reward. Though, the way some people work, it's almost like a gift. In fact, the new low today is, he showed up for work. I mean, as if, wow. And when I was growing up, you didn't show up for work, you got fired. Right? But this is something everyone can relate to. Now, to him who works, the wages, the compensation. The reward. What do you work for? You expect to get a wage. Usually paid either daily, weekly, or bi-weekly. Maybe monthly. You're not working for nothing. You're working to get a wage that your employer is obligated to give you in light of the work you have done. Now, is salvation something God is obligated to give us because of what we've done? Well, his point is going to be no. Then it's not a gift. No, then it's not by grace. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace. 
And the word not is emphatic, and the word counted is our word legizomai again. Found nine times in this chapter. This is the great imputation chapter of the Bible. In other words, it's not credited, it's not accounted to them as grace. In other words, it's a reward, it's not a gift. And the word as is kata, according to or in keeping with grace. You see, if it's grace, it can't be works. If it's works, it can't be grace. If it's a gift, it's not a reward. If it's a reward, it's not a gift. And you know, at the fair, at times we'll ask people, do you think salvation is an earned reward or a free gift? And some will say, well, I think it's both. Impossible. So then we walk them through why it can't be both, and they'll go, yeah, you're right. It's an earned reward. <laughs> Almost always they default into the works system. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but in strong contrast, as debt. That which is owed, the one is obligated to pay for the work rendered. Now I say this because this is the religious approach. Satan has used religion to blind people to the truth of grace and to encourage them to get saved through their own works or the rituals of the religion or the church. Paul blows that away. That is not the gospel. That is not good news. That's a satanic lie. And they usually teach salvation then on the installment plan basis because you could never know for sure when you've done enough work. That's why I've never known of any churches that say, you know, we've been observing your life for the last five years. Here's a certificate that guarantees you eternal life. They don't do that. And that's why I remember even at my own parents' funerals, as I was raised Roman Catholic, though I believe my mother was saved. I think my dad could have been saved. But at that religious funeral, they had what I call theological bungee jumping. You say, what do you mean? One moment it was, our dearly beloved Betty is in heaven. The next time they're praying that God would take Betty to heaven. And I'm thinking, either she's there or she's not. She died four days ago. Either she's in heaven or she's not. It almost sounded like she was in heaven and she bungee jumps down to earth and then she's getting called back up and you're just bungee jumping. But you see, that's the confusion of religion. That's the confusion if you add works to the message of grace. You know, my mom said to me here just a day or so before she died. She had gotten saved three years after I did. And she says to me, you know, Dennis, the doctor told me today that I have less than a week to live. And she said, just think, in less than a week, I'll be with Jesus. You see, that's the assurance you can have when you understand God's message of grace and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now in verse 5, Paul turns the tables. And what does he say? But in contrast to this work, merit, debt approach, but to him who does not work. Isn't that amazing? Now I want you to think about this for a minute. You have to work your way to hell because you cannot work your way to heaven. And when I hear someone say, how are you doing spiritually? Oh, Doing well, working, we're working. I'm like, what are you working for? The work is finished. But to him who does not work, but believes. Now, this is a present active participle of postul. What does that mean? 
That means the moment they believe, and the word active voice means they choose to do this, that they are going to be justified. But believes on him. The word on means a P resting upon. It would be, again, like the illustration of the chair. When you sit down on a chair, you are resting upon the chair to hold you up. Now, I have done this in El Salvador with a chair, and on one occasion, the chair broke. It's because I'm so skinny, right? The, the chair broke. And I said, did I have faith? Absolutely. But did I rely on a reliable object with my faith? No. And in the same way, when people have faith in Christ plus fill in the blank, they've just added to the gospel. They've just injected uncertainty into the plan. And if a chain is as strong as its weakest link and you and your works are part of the links, you'll never make it. That's why Jesus Christ did it all when he died on the cross Paid for our sins and rose again. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies, what does the word mean again? Declares righteous the ungodly. Wow! You know, what does religion teach you? That God justifies the godly. Oh no! Just the opposite. He justifies the ungodly. Not the self-righteous, but those who are sinful in both character and deed and deserving of God's condemnation. By the way, was Abraham ungodly? Absolutely. Is David going to be seen to be ungodly? Absolutely. Do you know who God justifies the ungodly? Otherwise, he would justify no one. The only person who was without sin, who ever walked the face of the earth, was the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's his righteousness that gets put to our account the moment we put our faith in him alone. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith. Now I want you to notice the word his. It's not God's gift to faith. The Bible does not teach that faith is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift from God. The Lord Jesus is a gift from God. Justification is a gift from God. But faith is not. Because there is no intrinsic value in faith. The value is in what you trust or who you trust. It's his faith. It's simple act of faith is accounted, it's credited, it's accounted to him, the ungodly sinner who believes, for or resulting in righteousness resulting in the imputation of or the receiving of righteousness from God. And so God's grace approach is totally different than man's work approach. In fact, here are the two approaches, as it were. On the left-hand side, you can see there, it says the work's approach is, I've done such and such. Therefore, God, you need to reward me because you owe it to me. The grace approach is simple faith in what Christ has done for us. And as a result, God then gives us salvation as a gift, paid for by Christ and received by faith in him alone so that it's all by God's grace. These two are antithetical. They could not be more polar opposite. 
In fact, go with me to Romans 11 very quickly before we come back here. Romans 11 and look at verse 6. Romans 11, verse 6. And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Again, they're like oil and water. They do not mix. They are separate. And we must not confuse them. Now, let me pause and make three applications here before we move on to example number two. Application number one. Salvation or justification has always been by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and the Lord alone, apart from good or religious works, for both the Gentiles and the Jews. Because remember, Abraham is a Gentile. And David's going to be a Jew. What has changed over time due to progressive revelation is the content of faith in the Lord alone, but not the object of faith alone. You see, one's object of faith in the Old Testament had to be in the true and living God. In the New Testament, we know him to be the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again. And so, salvation, justification has always been by faith alone. Because of the propitiatory work of Christ and the redemptive price that was paid when Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and me. Now this clears up some confusion on personal justification or salvation. In what way? Well, first of all, the Reformed view. Let me just explain this. And sometimes people who are dispensational have even said this kind of thing. See, Reformed Covenant theologians believe that in the Old Testament, people were saved by faith in Jesus Christ in view of his coming work. Now, that, what's problematic about that to begin with is are we to assume that everyone in the Old Testament that was justified knew that one day God would send a Savior who would die for our sins? Let me ask you a question. Was Rahab saved? Absolutely. She made the Hall of Fame of Faith. She got saved because she had heard 40 years earlier how God had destroyed Israel. I'm mean, not Israel, but Israel's enemies in Egypt and brought them through. And she put her faith in the true and living God. And then she showed her faith by hiding the spies, though she was justified before, she, before God, before she got justified before men, which is, by the way, the whole point of James 2. So did she believe in a coming Savior who would die for our sins? I don't think she began to know about that. What about the Ninevites? Through Jonah's ministry, did they change their mind and put their faith in the true and living God? Yes. Did they know about the coming Savior? No. I don't think so. In fact, when you think about how many verses in the Old Testament actually set forth the fact that Jesus Christ would come and die for our sins, we're at a loss of having very many. You have Psalm 22, you have Isaiah 53, you have Zechariah 12.10, you have uh, Daniel 9.27. Uh, you've got a picture of it in the animal sacrifices. But did they know that that was a picture of the coming Savior? Did they know the Paschal Lamb at the Passover was a type of Christ? I don't know that they knew that. But let's say they did. Do they have to know it, to, though, to be saved? 
Is that the moment they were saved? Or were many of them saved before that time, per se? You see, the Reformed view, I think, is insufficient to explain Old Testament salvation. Then there's the hyper-dispensational view, sometimes called mid-Acts dispensationalism. Now, they're dispensational, and I appreciate that, but they, I believe they wrongly divide the word of truth and going too far. Here's a quick picture of it. As you can see, they don't believe the church began on the day of Pentecost, sometimes mid-Acts, either Acts 9 or Acts 13, somewhere in there. And as a result, this has certain ramifications. So what kind of ramifications? Well, they actually believe, if you can see here, that only Paul's epistles are to us. Only Paul's epistles are to us, Romans through Philemon. Now, that's if you don't believe Paul wrote Hebrews, which I don't, but there are some who do, and there's been splits among the mid-Acts dispensationalists over that issue. Now, do you believe that only Paul's epistles are to us, that Hebrews isn't to us? Not for us, all the Bible's for us, but to us. What about 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John? How about Revelation? None of those books are to us, no, they are all, all those books are to us. To me, that's wrongly dividing the word of truth. But you say, well, how do they view Old Testament salvation? It's pretty shocking when you read someone like Cornelius Stan, one of the real forefathers of the movement, say, and I quote, thus while the principles of God never change, his dispensations, his dealings with men do change from time to time. Is that a true statement? Yes, that is. But... He goes further. This includes even the terms of acceptance with God. At first, blood sacrifices were required. Really? Required for justification? Then later, circumcision was added. Then obedience to the whole Mosaic law was demanded. And then the baptism of repentance for their mission of sins, Acts 2.38, which they misunderstand. And today, it's to him who worketh not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. Question, where is that found? Romans 4. And what's Paul's whole point in Romans 4? That it's never changed how God justifies people. Note carefully that while God refuses works for salvation today, he required them under other dispensations. That's not true. This was not, as we have explained, because works in themselves could ever save, but because they were the necessary expression of faith when so required. Not true. By the way, did Rahab offer any sacrifices? Was she justified by faith? Another one of their forefathers, named Charles Baker, wrote, and I quote, but the question arises, what would have happened had Abel refused offer, to offer the kind of sacrifice which God had commanded? Or had Noah refused to build an ark? Or had the 3,000 souls at Pentecost refused to be baptized? In other words, of, in the words of James, could that kind of faith save them? In what sense could refusal to obey God be called faith? Surely such refusal would mean only one thing, unbelief. Faith and the works of faith are thus so closely identified that we may say that men in the past dispensations could not have been saved apart from the works which God commanded. Look at Romans 3 with me, verse 28. 
Romans 3, 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Pretty clear there, isn't it? Apart from. Now, they'll say, well, that's true because in chapter 321, it says, but now. In other words, things are different now. No, Paul's whole point is things aren't different now by way of how to be justified, but that he's moving on from condemnation to justification. Starting in that verse to explain how one is justified. So again, what's his whole point here? Abraham, justified by faith. David, justified by faith. Now there's the classic dispensational view, which is the view we hold here. And Dr. Charles Ryrie wrote, and we agree, the basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. That's Romans 3, 25 and 26. The requirement for salvation in every age is faith. The object of faith in every dispensation is God. The content of faith changes in the various dispensations. Why? Due to progressive revelation, because more truth was given. And we're going to see that here, again, Abraham, David, and today, Justification's always been by faith alone, apart from works. A second application here is if you simply add even one work to salvation by grace through faith alone, it is no longer the message of grace, Romans 11:6, but it then becomes a meritorious debt or reward God owes you instead of a gift God gives you. See, God doesn't owe you salvation. It's not earned, but he freely gives it to you and it's received by faith. Thus, this free gift has been paid in full by Jesus Christ and adding even one work to his finished work actually makes it another gospel, which is no gospel at all. Now, I say that because people don't usually say, what I'm telling you today is another gospel. No, they're not going to do that. They think it is the gospel. And they'll say it's not by works, and then they'll tell you four things to do. And they just don't even realize the dichotomy and the dissonance that's going on when they're doing that kind of thing. Now, put a marker here and go with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Now, while Paul explains the gospel in the book of Romans, Paul defends the gospel in the book of Galatians. In no uncertain terms, we pick it up in verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Now, the word different is the Greek word heteros where we get heterosexual, having relations with a different kind of person, a male with a female. Verse 7, which is not another alos of the same kind. Now, I like to illustrate it usually with apples. 
You've got different kinds of apples. You've got Gala apples. You've got Jonathan Smith apples. You've got various, uh, you know what? But they're still all apples, right? But you don't pick up a pear and say, you know what? This is an apple. No, it's a pear. Pears and apples are different. In the same way, Paul is saying that when you add one work to the message of grace, it's not simply the same gospel. It's a totally different gospel. But there are some false teachers who had infiltrated these churches who are troubling you, they're disturbing you, and want to pervert or twist the gospel of Christ. And you know, when people are used to sound doctrine and someone comes in teaching something different, it can be very disturbing. Especially when they were adding the Mosaic Law here to both justification and sanctification. Verse 8, but even if, third class condition, we might or might not, we the apostles or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we, the Paul's missionary team and the apostles for that matter, have preached to you, let him be accursed. You say, well, where is the record of them preaching to the Galatian churches? It's in Acts 13 and 14. And in Acts 13, he says to him, the prophets have all spoken that you're justified by, not by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, let him be accursed. Now, some have misunderstood this. Some have translated this even, let him go to hell. <laughs> That's not what it's saying. Because if you're saved, you can't go to hell, even if you screw up the gospel later, right? But what it is, is it's a word of divine censure. It is a being pulled over by your supervisor and being given a, a letter of discipline, as it were, of censure and what you're doing, da-da-da-da-da. That's the idea here. Now, to reinforce it, he says in verse 9, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. You see, dear friends, if you add one work to the message of grace, you have changed the message from one of grace to one of works. Now, I want to illustrate this for a moment. And I want this, this empty bottle to picture the pure, unadulterated message of God's grace to hopeless, helpless, hell-bound sinners. The good news is that Christ God who became man died for your sins and rose again. And by faith alone in him, God will justify you. This is the message of grace. Now, all you have to do is come along and add one word to it. Say, well, you need to believe in Jesus Christ, plus you can fill in the blank. Guess what? It's no longer a message of grace. It's a message of works. It's not the same message the apostles preached. It's not the same message the Bible teaches. We've got to be clear. We've got to be right about this. If there's anything you want to be right, it's on the gospel. And you know, again, many unknowing preachers who will say it's not by works, then turn around and add works. 
And then sometimes they not only add works, they'll say, and if you're not fruitful, and if you're not faithful enough, and if you don't live a da-da-da-da-da, then you could lose your salvation or you were never saved. Let's add a few more works in there. That really helped the problem, cleared it up, didn't it? No, it just made it worse. Made it worse. And unfortunately, this again is what's happening over and over in our day. And so we see that this is very important to God and needs to be important to you and to me. And it's true that at times genuine believers have confused the gospel. And God wants to clear that up. And if that's true of you, then let God clear it up. Just be humble enough to get it right. And thank the Lord for getting it right. You know, in El Salvador, when we've gone over these very truths, usually to pastors, I mean, they are, when they first hear the gospel and then how you're not saved, it's when they're going over how you're not saved that they get convicted and they get humbled. And, and sometimes I had one pastor go home and he said, he got down on his knees and he told the Lord, Lord, I, I've been preaching the gospel wrong. I didn't mean to, but I've been preaching this wrong. And I confess that to you. And he says he walked away, he knew he was forgiven, and he came back the next day and he was just beaming because God had showed him the truth and he was willing to make the correction. You see, don't let your pride get in the way when it comes to this. Let's be humble and let's again go back to what the Bible says. Which leads us to a third application here. Namely, since salvation or justification is non-meritorious, it's by grace, it requires a non-meritorious volitional response, which is faith alone in Christ alone, since the only response that is not a work is faith which is not a gift from God, but salvation is. When good works are added to the gospel of grace, either to obtain it, maintain it, or prove you have it, it confuses the gospel and robs people of the absolute assurance of eternal life and a right relationship with God. Now, should indeed, as believers in Christ, we live a life that honors the Lord? Yes. Should our faith be manifest by our works? Yes. But once that's required... You've just confused the situation. How much works? In what area? What about when they're not there? What about your own failure? How much fruit do you have to know? And can you not know the moment you trust in Christ? Can you not know the moment the gavel in the courtroom of God says, you're justified? Can you not walk out saying, I'm justified? Or do you have to say, well, I'm going to wait a few days to see if I'm really justified. I'm going to wait and see how moral I become. Oh, no. You're declared righteous. And if the God of the universe declared you righteous, faith says, God says I'm righteous because of Jesus Christ. I've been declared righteous before God. It's credited to my account. Therefore, I believe I've been saved. I have been justified. I can know it. 
Because the judge of the universe said it. No wonder Paul would say later in Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what that is? Eternal security. And you know what else that is? I am persuaded that is absolute assurance. No wonder these things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may K-N-O-W know you have eternal life. Once you add works, you will not know. You can only know this if it's by faith in Christ based upon the word of God. Now this leads us, as it were, to illustration or example number two as we wake our way back to Romans chapter 4. We've been waiting to see this man. His, this name, his name is David. You're familiar with him? Saved as a child, was a shepherd boy, wrote many psalms, eventually became the king, second king of Israel. You may not only know of those things, but you may know of the fact that he committed adultery. He had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, murdered. And then he held out for months before he admitted it to the Lord and got back in fellowship. What a great illustration of justification here by faith. Example number two. The person is David. And by the way, why is he using two illustrations? It's because Jewish law required two witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. 2 Corinthians 13.1, even in the New Testament, Paul says, this will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. He will say it regarding accusations against elders. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except from two or three witnesses. Who are his two witnesses here? Abraham and David. So what do you have to tell us about David? Well, he, what I'm going to tell you, David, would, Paul would say, is his justification is in total agreement with Abraham's justification. The word just as means exactly as an example or illustration. In total agreement with Abraham is David describes, he proclaims, he announces, he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness. The state of being, of being blessed by God. The joy of knowing I'm saved. The joy of knowing I'm righteous before God. Declared such, I should say. That God has put to my account his righteousness. Gives me great joy. That's why I say when I got saved, I was sad, glad, and mad. I was sad others weren't. I was mad I had been lied to, and I was glad I was going to heaven. I enjoyed this blessedness of knowing that God had imputed righteousness apart from works. There's that word apart from again. When, again, the quote I read earlier, that they said that works were included with faith. 
We're not apart from faith. That's not what my Bible says. My Bible says that David had righteousness imputed apart from works to his account. So the passage Paul refers to now is Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2a. Make sure you include a, and you will see why in a moment. It is a psalm of David. And now we see the New Testament rendition of this Old Testament passage. It starts out with the word blessed or blessed. You're very familiar with it around here. You hear, have a blessed day or bless your heart, as it were. Well, this is a blessing from God. Blessed are those, not everyone possesses this, but some do, whose lawless deeds, whose whole anomia, ah means no, nomia is law, it speaks of violations, iniquities, transgressions, or the breaking of various laws that comes from a rebellious mind. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. It literally means to be sent away. It means to be forgiven. And it's in the passive voice, which means God did the forgiving. He forgave you. It's a fact. And whose sins are covered. Now, the word sins is hamartias. We saw it already in Romans 3, 23. It's the primary word for sins. In the New Testament, it refers to what offends God. And notice, whose sins are covered. Literally, to be covered or atoned for. For David, it was a reality he was blessed with. That God had done and it was a fact. Now, keep in mind, in the Old Testament, there was the Day of Atonement. The word atonement speaks of a covering for sin. So David is expressing the truth in Psalm 32 of having his sins covered. We know on that day there would be, again, two goats there. One would be slain. The other would be sent away. You know the word for sent away? In the Septuagint version of the Old Testament is the same word for forgiven right here. Because what is the point? Because of the sacrifice of one, the others, your sins get sent away. They get, again, separated from you, as it were. They get covered and forgiven, as we will see. Now, this is why in Hebrews 9.26, it's interesting. I'm going to read this from several translations. Otherwise, he would not have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Not the covering of sin. Removal. The ESV translates, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The New American Standard, to put away sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. The NET, to put away sin. Not to cover it. Because when Jesus Christ came, he didn't die and cover our sins. He removed them. He put them away. That's what the New King James translates. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now why was that needed? Because Romans 10 says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those same sacrifice which they offered continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. 
You could never have a perfect standing. You could never have a righteousness based upon offering animal sacrifices because the job was never done. Year after year. For then would they not have ceased to be offered if they got the job done? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins, but they did. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. They could only cover them until Jesus Christ removed them by the, his propitiatory work on the cross. So it's interesting how later in Hebrews 10 it says, by that will we have been sanctified, positionally set apart unto God through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Why? And every priest in the Old Testament standings stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, plural, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, past, present, and future, sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because his work regarding sin was finished. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You see, dear friends, the Old Testament saint could rightly say, covered, covered, covered. Yes, my sins are covered. But we can say, gone, gone, gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Not covered until Christ would finally come and fully pay for them, but gone, removed, taken away. As far as the east is from the west, we know as well. So there was the sense of covering, but it wasn't just covering. There was the sense of forgiveness as well. Verse 8, blessed, blessed to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Blessed are those to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. He not only imputes righteousness to our account, but he won't impute sin to our account. You know why he says that? Because after you declared righteous, you still what? Sin. And you know what? He doesn't impute it. Because he's accepted the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, as it were. He's declared us righteous, never to renege on his declaration. Now, I want you to go to Psalm 32. We're just about done for today. We'll pick this up next time. And I just want you to see something that's really, really interesting and significant. In Psalm 32... We'll begin at the beginning, verse 1. But before we do, it says a psalm of David, a contemplation. It's a psalm of who? David. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now I want you to notice here, Verses 1 and 2, Psalm 32, 1 and 2. And now I want you to notice what Paul quoted, though. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds, that's the translation given to transgression. That's, that's fine. That's a good translation. Are forgiven and whose sins are covered, as he's stating this in a broad sense way. Blessed is the man, in particular, David, to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Period. Wait a second. Why didn't you quote the whole verse, David? Here's why. Because in whose spirit there is no deceit is not a justification issue. It's a sanctification issue. And he's going to talk in the rest of the psalm about how he sinned against the Lord, how he kept quiet about it, he covered his sin, he didn't confess, and his spiritual vitality just went right out of him until he realized I'm going to admit this to the Lord and he forgave me. I thought he was already forgiven. He was judicially. But he will be forgiven by way of his fellowship with the Lord. So notice he leaves out the last part of the verse so as to not confuse the issue of justification and sanctification. Of salvation from sin's penalty versus salvation from sin's power. The difference between a righteous standing before God, a one-time non-repeatable act, versus your Christian life, which goes on day after day after day. That is a divinely wrought omission in Romans 4, so that we would be clear on this matter. Are you clear on this matter? Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for your word and for the opportunity to look into it today. All I can say, Lord, is you are just awesome. Your word is amazing. These truths are liberating. They give honor and glory to you and to your son. And they give us great freedom. They give us great assurance. They give us uh, uh, motivation to worship you, to thank you to praise you, and by your grace now, even to live for him who died for us, not in order to be saved, but because we've been. Not in order to be justified, so that we now could be sanctified in a way that brings honor and glory to you. And Father, I pray that this would be clear to everyone here, so that they could know beyond a shadow of a doubt they're saved and saved forever regardless of how they screw up later. For indeed, that was true of David, and that's been true of us. We know that you justify the ungodly. And we know that Abraham was ungodly, but so was David. And David's sin was even more expressed than Abraham's, as it were. And yet he knew for sure that he had been declared righteous before you. And so, Father, we thank you that in our worst hair days, we can know for sure we're saved, that we've been declared righteous just like David did. But it can also motivate us to want to now get in fellowship with you. For we know being in the family of God is one thing. Enjoying fellowship in the family of God is another. And so, Father, I just pray as believers, should anyone be here that's fighting the Lord, that is out of fellowship with him, that they would just admit that to you. Claim your forgiveness in 1 John 1, 9. Know that you've forgiven them and cleansed them from all unrighteousness. 
and rejoice like David did that you have imputed righteousness to us and that you do not impute our sin from the day you declared us righteous. We thank you for that in Jesus' name.